Hello and welcome to another podcast for U.S. History Repeated. This is Jimmy LaSalle and today's podcast will be a part one of two on the life and presidency of Theodore Roosevelt. The reformer, the rough rider, the trust buster, the hunter, the outdoorsman. You will find that he is definitely more than just another little pretty face on Mount Rushmore. Before we dive in, a few things. This is the first podcast of 2022. We are doing separate locations for the first time as Jean-Anne has COVID in her house with her little children. Now, as I'm editing, before we dive in, a few things. One, this is the first podcast of 2022, and also the first time we are doing this in separate locations. Usually, Jean-Anne and I are together as we record this, but her little ones tested positive for COVID, and uh, now, as I edit this, she has COVID too. No worries, all are doing well, as we are all vaccinated, boosted, And even her little ones, Joe and Colette, they have their vaccines. But if you want to give her a little shout out and just say hi and get better, you may do so on social media. She's always posting even as she is sitting there sick with COVID now. Next for our sponsors, we are looking for key sponsors to help fund the promotion of the podcasts. We want more listeners and we need to spend some money to promote. On to our existing sponsors, Elite Book Edits, writing, writing, wherever it's wrong. For all of your book editing needs, please visit EliteBookEdits.com. If you like a good vampire story, check out my book, Immortals Revelations by Jimmy LaSalle. It is available on Amazon, and I am also proud to say that my other book, The Naughty List, did fairly well during Christmas season. It's a good little Christmas-themed romantic comedy, and you might want to check that out too. Lastly, tell a history teacher about our podcast and have them go to our website, ushistoryrepeated.com, and sign on for our history happy hours. We drink, we talk history, lesson plans, it's a good time. And now I introduce our resident history buff, who we recorded this the other day. Thankfully, Jean Anzanakis, Jeannie, take it away. All right. So a big podcast today. Today is, you know, probably going to be a two-parter because there's a lot to talk about when it comes to Theodore Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt didn't have the usual start to his presidency. He was sworn in immediately following the death of President McKinley, who had succumbed to the wounds caused by an assassin's bullet. He was the first president to have 24-hour Secret Service protection. He was the youngest president we have had. He was 42 when he was sworn in as president. President John F. Kennedy gets the prize for being the youngest person elected president, but Roosevelt was younger when he became president as a result of the president's death. When he won the presidential election in 1904, he is believed to have told his wife, I am no longer a political accident. A man who had a larger than life presence with a reputation to match and who is one of our four former presidents whose likeness is carved onto Mount Rushmore. So who is Theodore Roosevelt? He was born on October 27th, 1858 in New York to a pretty wealthy family, and he was a sickly child. He suffered from asthma and was often sick. He was privately tu- uh, he was privately tutored at home And his father encouraged him to exercise to help make him more physically strong. In fact, the father built a gymnasium in the family home. So things like weightlifting, boxing, and a variety of outdoor activities like fishing and hunting and hiking 
they all contributed to his improved health and his love of the outdoors, which lasted until the day that he died. The family spent a lot of time outside and the outdoors was something he would love his whole life. When the Civil War broke out, it was particularly hard for the Roosevelts. His father paid someone to fight in his place for the Union. You know, rich man's war, poor man's fight. If I had a dollar for every time I said it at the podcast, I'd be pretty rich. His mother, who was you'd have her- about you'd have about six bucks. Well, I might have a little bit more than that. <laughs> His mother, who was from Georgia, sided with the Confederacy and sent money to support the cause. His uncles on his mother's side of the family fought for the Confederacy. While his father didn't actively fight in the war, he supported the Union cause and Union soldiers in a number of ways. T.R., as he is often referred to by historians, he studied at Harvard. He was at first a natural history major, but after his father's death, he changed his major to government and history, and he hoped to enter politics and public service. And for wealthy people, that really wasn't you know, a typical avenue you went down. While studying at Harvard, he met Alice Lee Hathaway and they were married. While earning his college degree, he also managed to fit in writing his first book. And it was on the Naval War of 1812. And it's considered one of the best books written on the topic to boot. He attempted law school, but he found it too boring. He decided to go straight into politics. He got involved in the local Republican Party, and he was sure to get himself noticed by the powers that be within the Republican Party's political machine in New York. His strategy worked, and he was elected to the New York State Assembly in 1882. While party bosses helped him to get elected, he made it clear that he would not be controlled. He also quickly noticed how corrupt New York politics were as a member of the state legislature, always a reformer. He worked to restore the Niagara Falls area, and he worked to improve both the living and working conditions of New York's factory workers. And he went after corrupt officials and worked with then governor and future United States president Grover Cleveland. They actually had a couple of fights, you know, over things in order to pass a civil service reform bill. Now, I don't typically talk about the dates when children are born of presidents, but this is kind of important. So in February of 1884, his first child, Alice, was born. His wife died of kidney disease two days after the birth of his daughter on Valentine's Day. And his mother died of typhoid fever the very same day and in the very same house. And his diary entry that day read, the light has gone out of my life. Overcome with grief, he returned to the work in the legislature, and then he headed out west to his ranch known as Elkhorn, and his sister helped to take care of his daughter until he remarried two years later. His life and adventures in the West helped him to earn his reputation as a man's man. He was strong and burly, and he loved hunting and shooting things. So he's hunting buffalo in the West, another large game. He invested in the cattle business, but it was not a wise investment. In fact, 
he did not handle the finances after he was remarried. The checkbooks were kept away from them. He just signed things, you know, not common for the time period. He married Edith Caro, who grew up next door to him. They were married in London and they would go on to have five more children. He loved being a father. He was a big kid himself, really. And he would take his children camping. He loved the outdoors. He was quoted as saying home, wife, children. They are what really count in life. He was known for taking breaks during the workday to play with his children. The family home on Long Island, New York, in Oyster Bay is known as Sagamore Hill. You can still go and visit it today. It's a nice place to go visit. And when he became president, it was known as the Summer White House. The home was full of his hunting trophies, mounted animal heads, rugs, antlers, you name it. It was stuffed and it was there. From 1888 to 1895, he was made commissioner of the U.S. Civil Service Commission by President Harrison. He hoped to reform the system so that it would attract the best people capable to do specific, you know, government jobs. He investigated fraud and he worked to expose corrupt government officials. And he continued on with this work when he became president of the United States. He was then made president of the New York City Police Board in 1895. He was originally asked to be head of the sanitation department. His response was something along the lines of who in their right mind would want to do that. In actuality, the real response was a lot more colorful. I will let you use your imagination. We're trying to keep this podcast clean. But he worked hard to clean up the police department, which at the time was incredibly corrupt. He is given this position during the height of the Gilded Age. He believed that no one was above the law. You have police officers taking bribes to look the other way. And when something is going down, police are nowhere to be found. So T.R. took his role as you know, head of the police seriously, and he would often go on night patrols looking for members of the force. And he did that regularly, even in the most crime-ridden areas. He wanted to ensure that the police officers were where they were supposed to be when they were supposed to be there. He cleaned up the police force a bit and was then appointed the, the assistant secretary of the Navy in 1897. And so the family moved back to Washington, D.C., and it was a position he held until he resigned to enlist and fight in the Spanish-American War in 1898. T.R. was never one to miss out on the action. He was not about to sit behind a desk and hear about the war secondhand. He was the de facto leader of the Rough Riders. We talked more about this on our episode on the Spanish-American War. His career as a soldier was only a few weeks long, but that doesn't matter. His fate as a war hero was cemented in history. Everyone loves a war hero, especially voters. He was elected governor of New York in 1898, and he worked to bring needed reforms or changes. A number of his decisions as governor alienated many of the businesses and individuals that supported the New York Republican Party political machine. And so party bosses needed to get rid of him in New York. So they worked to get him on the ballot for vice president. And this was still a nothing position. They thought they had put T.R. in a position where he could no longer meddle and make reforms and cause trouble. 
Little did they know that McKinley would soon be assassinated and he would become president of the United States. He was too much of a progressive reformer. Party leaders pushed him for the nomination for vice president, thinking they would get rid of him in New York, put him in a job that's still a minor role. And at first, after McKinley was shot, it was thought he would survive. But Vice President Roosevelt was quickly brought to Buffalo when it was apparent that the president you know, was dying. And he was sworn in as president less than an hour after McKinley died in the home of his friend. Fun fact, he did not use a Bible. There wasn't one. And the ceremony, you know, it was just planned too quickly for that. After McKinley's assassination so quickly into his second term, Roosevelt became the youngest president in United States history. And you best believe he hit the ground running. During his presidency, there's a ton of domestic issues. There's a ton of foreign policy issues. So we're going to have to break this up at some point. For domestic issues, you know, before we get into that, just for living in the White House, President Theodore Roosevelt once said, I don't think any family has enjoyed the White House more than we did. His young children could be seen roller skating inside the White House. At this time, you know, the family rooms and offices were all in the same area. Edith Roosevelt changed this. The West Wing of the White House was built where greenhouses once stood. The famous Oval Office won't be added for another few years. But Edith Roosevelt was intent on making the White House a home. At this time, you know, they redecorated and modernized with a number of rooms and, you know, naturally added a few animal heads. In fact, on some of the, you know, mantles on the fireplaces in the White House, you'll see, you know, buffalo heads. That's Teddy Roosevelt's contribution to the decor of the White House. The American public was fascinated by this young family. One of the biggest stories of Roosevelt's presidency was his having dinner in the White House with Booker T. Washington. Booker T. Washington was an advisor to the president, a, a leader within the you know, African-American community. We had a whole podcast on Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois. Check it out if you haven't. And the dinner made national headlines and both men got flack for it. Booker T. Washington getting the brunt of it, which even included death threats. Enslaved people built the White House, right? This is a fact. Black Americans are servants in the White House at this time. Black Americans are having meetings in the White House. But this was the first time that the American public knew of, right? But the first time that a person of color dined with the president and the first family in the White House. The Southern press and politicians were infuriated. During his presidency, two major departments are created, but it's just one cabinet position. So we have the Department of Commerce and Labor, and that was created in 1903. And this cabinet department was created to investigate business practices, to ensure fair trade, protect commerce, and address labor disputes. It was a very large and complex federal agency that was in charge of a number of very different and sometimes issues that were at odds with each other. So you have prominent labor unions that had hoped that the Department of Labor that was established by Congress in 1888 would be elevated to its own cabinet level position. 
and union leaders became increasingly dissatisfied with the current arrangement because issues pertaining to labor, you know, things like higher wages, better working conditions, limits on immigration, regularly took a back seat to big business, commerce, and trade. These departments would eventually be separated in 1913, and the Department of Labor, of course, getting its own cabinet-level position then. Another big issue was a coal mining strike. Coal miners went on strike in 1902 in order to improve working conditions. As the strike continued and the winter months approached, you know, it's, it's a political problem, right? A disaster if you're president of the United States. President Theodore Roosevelt threatened to nationalize the coal industry. The intervention of J.P. Morgan, and it's not the first time he will get involved and save the day or the last, who also had money to lose if the strike didn't end, helped to bring both sides together and the strike was ended. President Roosevelt has a reputation for being known as a trust buster. Others feel the term trust regulator is more appropriate. In regards to big business, President Roosevelt didn't believe that all trusts or monopolies were bad. Businesses that created a monopoly over an industry by means of unfair practices and exploited the American public needed to be broken apart. And one such bad trust was owned by none other than J.P. Morgan, the J.P. Morgan that had just saved his political life, right? So Morgan created a monopoly of the railroad industry, and the attorney general brought a lawsuit against the Northern Securities Corporation. This company had a monopoly on the railroad lines of the Western United States. The Department of Justice went after the company. Morgan was furious, and he met with President Roosevelt, allegedly also asking what other business interests of him might be under attack, to which Roosevelt answered, only the bad ones. The case went all the way to the Supreme Court. The case was called Northern Securities versus the United States of 1904. And as a result of the case, each railroad within the company had to be operated independently. And some of those companies would merge, you know, decades later. But in total, Teddy Roosevelt went after over 40 trusts. Now, that that would be the equivalent of someone jumping into office today and going after probably you know, Google and Facebook and all of these other companies, right? Yes. But after like Google and Facebook saved their political life, right? And did something to save the country from potential disaster and people going cold all winter and then being like, "Mm, no, I'm going to go after you. You know, it was a little shady, but you know, it needed to be done. Well, perhaps the motives of JP Morgan were to try to avoid this, knowing that it might be coming and, you know, Maybe. I mean, you know, J.P. Morgan went after companies and he made sure he got himself a seat on the board of all the companies that he took over. And so we had kind of intel when things were going awry, especially with, you know, economic panics. And it was how he was able to position himself and ultimately made himself much richer. So I wouldn't put it against him. But, you know, you know, left a bad taste in J.P. Morgan's mouth when it came to Teddy Roosevelt. The next thing we should talk about is the Hepburn Act, and it gave the ICC, which is the Interstate Commerce Committee, the right to set a maximum rate for railroads and allowed access to the financial records of railroad companies. 
but this was not passed easily. Roosevelt had to really sell this idea to the American people. And to do so, he traveled throughout the United States, especially the Western United States, to promote it. When it came to labor, big business, the average consumer, and legislation, President Roosevelt presented his domestic agenda as being a square deal. What it meant was that everyone was entitled to a fair deal. Many historians will look to the three C's when discussing the square deal, things like consumer protection, corporate regulation, and conservation of natural resources. Railroads and oil weren't the only industries that saw government regulation. The Food and Drug Act was passed in 1906, and it established the FDA, which is the Food and Drug Administration. And we're going to go into that topic a lot more on our podcast on the progressive era. In fact, we have an interview with the FDA, their Office of the Historian. So keep an eye out for that one. It's going to be a good one. The federal government began taking an interest in the safety of drugs, medicines, and foods in the 1840s. As transportation improved, it changed the way people could sell products. Items that were once too far to be sold in a market hundreds of miles of we- uh, away then could be. But we also see the additions of dyes and chemicals that are being added to foods in order to disguise impurities or to mask the smell or taste of food that you know, had spoiled. Medications were not only mislabeled, but misleading. Studies on milk, for example, right? How you don't get much more wholesome than a glass of milk, right? So studies on milk expose the dangers of unpasteurized milk and the importance of testing cows for tuberculosis. There were medications being sold with ingredients like cocaine and heroin in them. And consumers were completely unaware of their existence within the product. You know, that goes for that goes for Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola originally had cocaine in their product. Yes. Yes. And in fact, if you look at American sign language, which I know I'm a woman of many talents, the sign for, you know, there's a sign for soda pop, but specifically for Coke or Coca-Cola, it looks like you're shooting something in your arm. That's Coca-Cola's American Sign Language. It's no longer in there. We love Coca-Cola. If you want to sponsor us, give us a shout out. <laughs> um, but this is what happens when you have traveling salesmen and entertainers, you know, peddling magic elixirs that train, you know, that claim to treat all sorts of illnesses and aches and pains. And of course it did. It t- of course it took away your back pain. You were high as a kite, you know? So there's a reason why they kind of worked a little bit. Or at least amped up, right? Yeah, sure. By the late 1930s, when another Roosevelt is president, a new law will be passed to replace this one to further protect consumers and to you know better ensure the safety of foods and drugs. But we're going to get more into that when we discuss the progressive era. Stories of rotten meat being given to U.S. soldiers fighting in the Spanish-American War Investigations uncovered that preservatives such as borax and formaldehyde were being used on meat, all right? Embalmed meat, anyone? Countless news stories and the book The Jungle by Upton Sinclair, which we'll also get into more when we talk about the progressive era, all added to the public and government support for reform when it came to processing meat. 
And I just want to give you a quote from The Jungle of Upton Sinclair. Jim, have you ever read The Jungle by Upton Sinclair? I don't think so. All right. So The Jungle by Upton Sinclair was a socialist. And his goal in writing this book was to shed a light on working conditions for the working class. And when people read The Jungle, they didn't care that people were working long hours. What they did care about was the food that they were putting on their table and feeding their family was disgusting. So this is a direct quote from the jungle. There was never the least attention paid to what was cut up for sausage. There would come all the way back from Europe, old sausage that had been rejected. And that was moldy and white. It would be dosed with borax and glycerine and dumped into the hoppers and made over again for home consumption. There would be meat that had tumbled out onto the floor in the dirt and sawdust where the workers had tramped and spit uncounted billions of consumption germs. There would be meat stored in great piles in rooms and the water from leaky roofs would drip over it and thousands of rats would race about on it. It was too dark in these storage places to see well, but a man could run his hand over these piles of meat and sweep off handfuls of the dry dung of rats. These rats were nuisances, and the packers would put poisoned bread out for them. They would die, and then the rats, bread, and meat would all go into the hoppers together. This is no fairy story and no joke. The meat would be shoveled into carts, and the men who did the shoveling would not trouble to lift out a rat even when he saw one. There were things that went into the sausage in comparison with which a poisoned rat was a tidbit. There was no place for the men to wash their hands before they ate their dinner. And so they made a practice of washing them in the water that was to be ladled into the sausage, end quote. So you hear that the American public is reading this. And so, you know, he's hoping they're they're talking about, you know, there's can't these workers can't see and they don't they can't there's no place for them to wash their hands before they eat and you know the american public is like what about the meat so the meat inspection act prohibited the sale of adulterated or misbranded meat products it authorized the department of agriculture to inspect and label meat products either before or after slaughter so the USDA, and that's what the USDA stands for, for anybody who doesn't know that, the United States Department of Agriculture. The USDA had the right to inspect in order to ensure that the meat products were being produced in a sanitary environment and that the animals that people are eventually going to be eating are healthy. This law, while it was good for the American consumer, it also hurt smaller businesses in the industry because they couldn't keep up with the cost of meeting new regulations. All right. Thank you, Jeannie. We're going to take a break there for this part one, and we will continue with part two. And you've been listening to U.S. History Repeated. Follow us on all social media channels. See you soon. Always more to learn.